Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. I'm sick of being a side Indian character. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to Race Card. I'm your host, Ahmed Youssef. And joining me in studio today, we've got co-hosts. Amina, hey everybody. And the Rundafi. Hi. Hey. Uh, and uh, before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge that Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet. And we pay our respects to the elders past, present and future. This land was never ceded in the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. We have a special exclusive interview with Ali Abu Nima, activist, writer and co-founder of Electronic Intifada in Shia today. And... Also, we'll be looking at a new segment we debut called In the Bin. Yay! Um, and we might be looking at a few articles that mention whitewashing that don't really make sense. And I feature stories on gentrification of a particular suburb, Footscray. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card. Big up. Joining us this week on the podcast, we've got Ali Abunima. Um, thank you for coming on the, sh- the podcast. It's my pleasure, Ahmed. And I guess um, for people that don't know um, what you do, give us a brief kind of introduction. Well, I'm uh, the editor of the Electronic Intifada, which is probably the leading English language news publication on uh, the issue of Palestine. Um, we're based in the U.S., but we work with journalists all over the world, particularly, of course, in Palestine. And... Um, I've written a couple of books, most recently The Battle for Justice in Palestine, and I've been involved in this issue for uh, probably close to 20 years. So how did you start? Well, it's something that I was always close to because it uh, affected my family. Uh, Both of my parents are born in Palestine, and um, uh, my mother uh, was made a refugee at a a young age. And... um, so it was always close, but I think the challenge of being involved uh, politically or journalistically is to make uh, connections beyond Palestine and to understand that this, the struggle for justice in Palestine isn't just about a particular ethnic group. It's not just about us, but it's really connected to uh, other situations of injustice in the world. I guess, how did that make you feel? Because you had that personal connection. Well, it it made me feel initially that, uh, you know, uh, there was a great injustice, a lasting injustice that had been perpetrated against Palestinians, forced out of their homeland or forced to live under Israeli military occupation. And this was being directly supported by 
principally by the countries that claim to be most attached to democracy and human rights. So, of course, the United States, the European countries, and uh, Australia and Canada. And um, I also began to realize that there's a connection here because what Palestinians experienced is a, a violent and racist form of settler colonialism uh, called Zionism, where uh, European settlers came uh, from Europe, forced Palestinians off their land, uh, totally disregarded their lives, made them uh, really even describe them as a non-people. I mean, you still hear very frequently supporters of Israel saying there's no such thing as a Palestinian people or the Palestinians never existed. So denying even their existence. And of course, I realized that this is really exactly what happened to indigenous peoples in other parts of the world, including North America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Canada, and of course, South Africa. And so it's really no surprise that uh, it is countries like Australia and uh, uh, the United States whose elites and governments uh, feel most supportive of Israel. They identify with Israel as settler states. You're talking, um, I guess the other night we, we, we had a dinner sort of thing, um, and you were talking about how 25 years ago or so, when you were, when you were a student at, at university, um, compared to now the conversation about Palestine, free Palestine, and, and that movement was basically non-existent. It took a back seat to um, struggles in South Africa and elsewhere. And yeah, How did that make you feel? It wasn't non-existent. Uh, it was different. What uh, The point I was making is that it was isolated and marginalized. Um, there Why were do you think that was? Well, I, you know, there was a, a, a phenomenon still exists that people sometimes call progressive except Palestine, where you had uh, people who are campaigning around uh, opposing apartheid in South Africa, opposing the uh, genocidal U.S. interventions in Central and South America uh, for the rights of Tibet. And those are all, you know, very important and worthy causes. But uh, often the same people would not touch Palestine. And uh, I think it's it, the, the reason why is partly because um, Israel and Zionists uh, had success, succeeded in um, basically conning people into thinking that supporting Israel, supporting Zionist settler colonialism was the progressive position. And now um, I would say the situation is very different, at least in the United States. You find the issue of Palestine really at the center of student politics. So that's why, a real success. What would you credit to that change, I guess? Well, there are lots of things. One, I think that Palestinians uh, and their supporters have asserted themselves. There's been a lot of effort to educate people about the realities in Palestine, and it's not the fairy tale that Israel has been telling uh, of, you know, a progressive democratic socialist society, but it's a reality of brutal occupation and settler colonialism. That's become more visible. The Internet has allowed us um, to uh, bypass the traditional gatekeepers in mainstream media who haven't allowed these stories to be told, these rea realities to be told. And also, a very important, the growth of the 
Palestinian-led boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which over the last decade has really changed the conversation. It's brought it back to basic Palestinian rights and away from sort of the uh, comfortable discourse which focused on uh, the peace process. Uh, Say also in the United States, there's an ongoing major demographic and social and political shift where, you know... um, the population is becoming younger, it's becoming browner, it's becoming more uh, open and progressive. And you're seeing a racist backlash against that for sure. But I think that's one of the reasons to feel optimistic about the future of the United States. I guess um, you've been working on the electronic uh, intifada for, for quite a while. How, how is that daily process? Um, well, it's a lot of work, but we have a great team. We run like uh, you know any other publication where you know there's uh, we're we're working with reporters, we're working with contributors to put out uh, the best publication we can every day, which includes uh, news stories, analysis, uh, you know, book and film reviews. Uh, we have a podcast as well. That uh, where we interview uh, people regarding you know what's happening in Palestine or uh, cultural activities they're involved in. So we really try to provide a full spectrum of coverage, and um, we work very hard at it. It's um, it's supported uh, by uh, our readers. It's you know financed by contributions from our readers. It's a nonprofit uh, organization. And, um, you know, it's, I think, I feel that we do our best work right now, that, that we're, you know, at, at the top of our game. And that's a credit to the incredible team of people I, I have the opportunity to work with every day. Do you see yourself as a kind of anti-media showing a different perspective than the one we see from the media elite, from CNN, New York Times, and, and, and those kind of publications? No, we are the media. They are the anti-media. Um, Let's talk about know. that. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, we are, we're a publication that uh, produces high-quality, uh, well-reported, well-researched, uh, thoroughly fact-checked news that uh, that stands up to any scrutiny from anyone in the world. And there's, you know, critics who sometimes try to pigeonhole us one way or the other, but they can't touch our reporting. It's absolutely solid. And we believe in reporting on stories that uh, really uh, are not told otherwise. Um, and so, and that was really the motivation for starting the publication because, um, you know, we just weren't seeing the realities reflected. And uh, while I've been here in Melbourne, we were at um, a symposium of Australians for Palestine and um, talking about media coverage. And some of the points that came up is that, you know, Palestine is only covered through the the lens or the perspective of Israelis. Uh, You know, uh, violence makes headlines when Israelis are the victims. The fact that Palestinians are the victims almost every day is not considered news. How does that make you feel as as a Palestinian? Well, it's dehumanizing to Palestinians, but this uh, is not uh, unique to Palestinians, of course. We see that uh, in in the current uh, situation in the world, the horrific uh, terrorist attacks in Paris and Brussels, of course, they should be covered. 
and they receive intense coverage. Uh, the victims are intensely humanized and profiled and, and so on. And that's all completely appropriate. But we don't see the same attention given to victims of horrific attacks when they're in Ankara or, uh, or in Yemen or in uh, other countries. Where Why? Why do you think that is? I think it's a, it's a reflection of... Uh, of of uh, institutional racism, and uh, I think it's a reflection of um, a structure, a, a, a racial structure in the world, which is the product of colonialism, but very much alive, where, you know, the lives of brown people, the lives of people on the margins are just, uh, you know, not considered as valuable or important. And uh, Palestine is a microcosm of that, where the lives of Israelis are considered infinitely more important and valuable than the lives of Palestinians. On your, just going on back to the, the work of the Electronic Infatara, um, one of the people that you worked with was subpoenaed by the FBI and, and was monitored by the FBI. Um, talk to me about that. Well, that wasn't to do with the Electronic Intifada. That was um, a... Uh, a few years ago, the um, FBI in Chicago began um, sort of what's called a fishing expedition uh, uh, to research, to investigate and intimidate anti-war activists and people who were uh, who are involved in Palestine solidarity work. And they actually raided the homes of a couple of people and they subpoenaed others before a grand jury. As far as I understand, no one went before the grand jury. And now it's this is about five or six years ago. They never indicted anyone, never brought any charges, uh, which, of course, proves to us, that's the ultimate proof, that there was never a crime being investigated. It was uh, a form of intimidation against people who'd, who'd been involved in perfectly legal, constitutional uh, uh, advocacy and anti-war organizing. Uh, and so that kind of thing has gone on, uh, you know, all over the United States. Um, and uh, you know, it really was very much part of the sort of uh, quote-unquote uh, counterterrorism hysteria where anyone who was saying anything about um, uh, the situation in the Middle East or the U.S. wars there could have found themselves a target of such uh, fishing expeditions. Does that discourage your work or, or the work of your colleagues? No, not at all. Absolutely not, because we know that what we're doing is... Um, exercising our constitutional rights to do journalism, to free speech, to free association. And, um, you know, as much as the, there are these efforts by uh, authorities, there are still constitutional protections, and we believe in them, and we fight for them. So it doesn't discourage us at all. Absolutely not. Do you feel like you're being watched? I don't feel I'm personally being watched, but I think we're all being watched. And, you know, we know now that, uh, you know, governments are engaging in, in uh, mass monitoring of uh, people's communications, and uh, we have really no uh, control over that. So, um, you know, but everything we do, we're a publication, and by its nature, it means we publish. Everything we do is in the open. Uh, so, you know, if people want to know what we think or 
you know, what we're covering, then they can read the electronic intifada. There's really, uh, you know, nothing, uh, <laughs> nothing mysterious about it. Are you ever afraid to go to certain places? Um, you know, I'm very lucky that uh, I can travel relatively freely in the world um, and uh, I don't have to flee in the way we see refugees fleeing for their lives across the Mediterranean and thousands this year alone have paid with their lives. Um, you know, or we see people being detained in the uh, prison camps that Australia has set up. So, you know, th those are people who... Um, who are in, in real danger, and I don't face anything at all uh, similar to that. So I count myself very lucky and privileged in that sense. Definitely. But I, I remember you talking the other night about feeling like you probably shouldn't go to Palestine, uh, go to, like for example, the West Bank. Well, I, 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 I wasn't talking about myself uh, personally. What, I, what we were talking about is that... Um, Israel is an, a military. There's a military occupation, and Israel controls absolutely the movements of everyone in and out of the West Bank, and of course Gaza, which is under siege. And uh, th the concern that people have raised is that you know uh, people want to you know activists or journalists, independent journalists want to go there, and uh, young Palestinian Americans or Palestinian Australians want to go there. And uh, the reality is that Palestinians um, and others of any background face systematic denial of entry by Israel. And it's a very arbitrary process. In other words, some people go and they're let in. Others are uh, interrogated for eight hours and then let in or refused. And you don't really know. And we have heard cases uh, of... Um, people who uh, try to get in and the Israelis Google their name and say, you know, you wrote an article about, you know, critical of Israel, etc. Uh, so the question is whether people should try to, um, you know, tone down what they say uh, in order to try to avoid being denied entry by the military occupation. And my answer to that is that it's, you know, military occupation is by its nature arbitrary. So you should not allow yourself to be censored by it. And if it's a choice between uh, speaking your mind, exposing the crimes and reporting on the crimes that Israel's committing, or being denied entry, then in my opinion, it's better to be denied entry. Do you think we, I guess, underestimate the danger of the IDF and by extension Israel? Well, there, I, I, I don't think we do. I think one of the, the things we do is to report on what's happening. For example, uh, before coming to the studio, I was editing a report on an extrajudicial execution of a Palestinian youth. People might have seen the video. It's very horrific of this injured youth lying on the floor and an Israeli soldier shooting him in the head at uh, basically point-blank rage. Well, that um, crime is probably the most serious kind of war crime that can be committed, and it's well documented. There's videotape. Uh, human rights groups have interviewed witnesses and taken uh, affidavits. Um, and, you know, already Israel is, you know, the system which 
guarantees these uh, uh, criminals, uh, like the soldier who killed this young Palestinian, the system that guarantees them impunity is already kicking in. For example, at first, you know, Israel said, oh, this is terrible. We're going to charge him with murder. Now they've said, well, we're going to charge him with manslaughter. It's very likely he'll serve any time for, unlikely, sorry, that he'll serve any time for this cold-blooded uh, street execution. So um, there, we're very realistic about what, what Israel does. There's ample documentation similarly about its last war on Gaza and the ones before that, the systematic targeting of civilians. So there is no shortage of evidence the the problem is a lack of accountability and the impunity that Israel has is because governments like Australia, like the United States, like others, guarantee Israel's impunity. And so for us as journalists, our role is to report these things, to make people aware and to provide people who care about justice with information they can use to advocate, for, for example, for an end to Australia doing business with Elbit Systems, one of the bloodiest Israeli arms makers there is, or other recent successes like, uh, for example, a global campaign uh, which, um, f which got G4S, one of the world's biggest security and prison firms, to announce that it's going to pull out of uh, Israel. This is a company with a lot of blood on its hands that uh, has has uh, equipped and helped run Israeli prisons where Palestinian prisoners are kept. Well, it's one of the biggest employers in the world. And it was the Palestinian boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign that got this company to announce that it's going to withdraw. So those are re re really significant uh, achievements. And they come about because... Uh, um, we and others, of course, I'm not taking all the credit for that, but we and others work to inform people. And, um, you know, without that information about what Israel is doing, then, you know, people can't act on it. And on that reporting, what's what's the emotional toll? Like, because obviously you are affected by seeing numbers of people dying, hearing about them, and then having, because that's your job, having to report that, how... Like, how do you cope with that? How does it feel? Well, you know, I, I think it's important to recognize it does have an impact on people. You know, when you're looking at pictures and videos and, uh, you know, of, of this stuff every day, it can be very depersonalizing. Um, it's it, it can be very, you know, this sort of something called secondary trauma. When you're looking at these things, you feel it very intensely, for example, during the attacks on Gaza. Um, so that's there, and you have to be aware of that if you're going to be involved in this work over the long term, which we are. You know, you have to be able to protect yourself from the negative impact of it. I, again, I'm very aware that for us um, it's very different than for people who are actually living through it. And, you know, the, the levels of um, mental health crisis that Palestinians face without any access to uh, treatment or support or therapy is massive. Um, in Gaza, for example, there are, uh, you know, surveys which show that, uh, you know, very large proportions of people um, show symptoms, some symptoms of PTSD or of um, other things related to trauma and the violence that they've witnessed or experienced. 
Um, so, you know, we're not in the same category as that. But at the same time, it, it does have an impact on you. And it's important to, uh, and this this is true for anyone who's involved in um, in journalism or political work or activism or community work, is that you have to be careful not to burn yourself out. You have to make sure that you... Um, uh, that you laugh, that you uh, do things you enjoy, that you do things with friends, and that you give yourself mentally and physically enough time and space to uh, to re-energize so that you always um, are at, at your best when you're doing the work and at the same time not uh, being worn down by it. What do you do? Um, I like to paint. I like to go for walks. I like to read. Um, you know, those are all things that I like to do to uh, just sort of mentally uh, tune out of the things that I do every day. And they're very, um, uh, you know, and those are very refreshing things that, you know, don't take a lot of uh, time or money to do, but I just try to make them part of everyday life. Are you, I guess, are you surprised by... You were talking the other night that you feel like, like you said, you've said this just um, like, like, uh, in the interview as well, that there's a change happening, that you can see a sort of a more, like you said, a more pro-Palestine stance and things are changing in the States. Can you see in your lifetime a time when Palestine is the way it was before um, settler colonialism? I can see a time, of course, when things are different, when Palestine is liberated. Um, it will be a different Palestine to one, the one that exists now, and it will be a different Palestine than the one that existed in the time my parents were children or their parents were children. But it can still be a free and decolonized Palestine. And I think it's really important to have that kind of um, vision and hope because... Um, you know, the world changes because people first imagine a different kind of world. And, um, you know, that might sound very sort of, uh, I don't know, light or something. But no, that's very important that every political vision begins with, you know, imagining a different kind of world, saying we you know, these are the things we want to change and having a vision for a different kind of uh a country and a different kind of world. So, you know, I've tried to engage in, in that um, by talking about a one-state solution. My first book, One Country, was an effort to imagine a future in which Palestinians and Israelis live in a decolonized and democratic state as equals. Uh, and that's work I've tried to continue. And one of the amazing things is to see that many young people are having those conversations now. So um, I do see that, and I do think that there is a, a change in um, particularly the younger generation in the United States who are much more open to, uh, to um, a critique of Israel and Zionism than previous generations where those were really kind of taboos you couldn't touch. So um, I, I think on the one hand, the situation on the ground in Palestine has in many ways never been harder. Uh, at the same time, globally, the strength of the solidarity movement and 
the openness of the discussion around Palestine has never been better. So, you know, there's kind of a paradox there, but our, our job is to narrow that gap so that uh, we can turn this global support into power that can bring about a change of, of the reality for Palestinians. Now, lastly, um, there's, there was a bit of trouble coming to Australia. Tell me about that. What happened? What happened was that... Um, I'd applied for a visa. I mean, there's a long story, but the short version is I'd applied for a visa at the beginning of February for a trip that was beginning in late March. And the visa was just not coming, and there was no explanation for that given. And so about a week before my trip, uh, we started to get very concerned about whether I would get the visa at all. And, uh, you know, people I'd talked to who, who had some experience with this thought that the delay was very unusual, that it could be related to, you know, political reasons because I was coming to talk about Palestine or talk about the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. So it's very possible, we don't know for sure, but it's very possible that uh, different groups or individuals might have uh, seen my presence advertised that I was going to be speaking in Australia and might have made representations that perhaps I shouldn't be given a visa. Well, a week before the trip, um, when there was still no sign of a visa, um, my host, which was the which was Socialist Alternative, um, put out a petition. They put out a media release, and there was an incredible response. Thousands of people signed the petition. I know people were writing to their MPs in the government. Uh, there were media reports. I spoke to several publications, including New Matilda. And um, within a couple of days, the visa came, just three days before my flight. So I think um, that was a really important victory for people in Australia to tell their government that um, you, you, don't, you can't stop us from deciding um, which authors to speak to, which uh, uh, people to hear from. Um, and then there was, uh, after I got the visa, the next odd thing that happened was that Sydney University suddenly cancelled the booking for the lecture hall that I was due to speak in. Um, and then another petition and more, more media reports, and they reversed that. And they still haven't explained it. Uh, we still don't know why they cancelled a paid-up reservation that was confirmed a month earlier. Um just 36 hours, uh, or, or sorry, but yeah, about two two days before I was due to speak there. Um, there was no explanation given. And again, that might have been another example of political interference. But, um, you know, we may or not, may not ever find out. The important thing is, I think the reaction mm. was huge. And that was really... Um, you know, I'm very grateful for that, and I think it's probably why I'm in Australia. Yeah, well, it's probably why you're having this interview right now, which I really appreciate. Thanks for, for coming on the race card. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> And uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled 
is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal Party. Uh, this is not an easy so, day for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. Now we're going to a segment, a new segment in the bin. We'll be highlighting some of the new. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's stories that you know, need to be thrown in the bin, um, as well as some people and some organizations that need to be put in the bin. Um, now, first up on the list for the bin, you don't mind if I go first? Can yeah, I go first? Go for it. Go All right. for it. All right. I'm going first. All right. <laughs> My nomination for the bin is the AFL, who somehow allowed this banner, Go Pies, Stop the Mosques, in, the, in, um, in a stadium this weekend. You know, like, I've been to a lot of like sporting events, uh, particularly a lot of soccer games, where banners and particularly flags have been banned. And in the A-League, you're not allowed to bring a, an ethnic flag that isn't the Australian flag. So... Uh, so I'm sure the AFL could have done something, anything, to stop this banner from entering the MCG. Because, like, you do bag searches before you go in. Um, sh- like, security people see the the, pro- the things that you're bringing to the stadium. So AFL, you could have done something. Instead of that, like, mealy-mouthed apology <laughs> that you put out um, a few days later. You know, AFL, you're in the bin. I've got something I want to put in the bin. It's more like a trend. <laughs> Not really a trend, but something people are doing on social media. So basically, in the past like 24 hours, uh, misinformation and premature celebration has been happening today with Sky News, The Straits Times, Courier Mail, Huffington Post Australia, and SBS reporting that no asylum seeker children are held in detention. But more information has surfaced. And this is more of an issue of semantics rather than an issue of structural change in policy. So what has happened is that they've just changed the wordings around so that it's basically no children are left in, um, how do we say, are, no, are not left in detention, they're in community detention. So that's pretty much what they've done. They've just changed the wordings around. It's not like, um, it's not like their conditions have changed substantially. Mm-hmm. And so I think all these like, memes and all these graphics shared by even like asylum seeker organizations yeah. Like, what is wrong with you people? Like, do you not understand what the hell you're doing? Um, I think that attitude needs to go in the bin. 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 <laughs> All right, what about you, Arundhati? So I have several things from the bin. I'm going to start with Julian Burnside made a tweet, like, on Palm Sunday saying, Make a mark, walk on Palm Sunday, and if you're a woman, wear a headscarf to see how people react. I don't know. It's just pr- pretty obvious, like, how ridiculous this is. Um, firstly, it's, like, acting like a headscarf is just, like, a costume that you can wear to, like, experiment, like, with whether or not you 
like will suffer oppression. Secondly, it's just like it's making Muslim women's experience just like some sort of joke to like talk about how like terrible Australia is. Thirdly, he's not even really making a like a, any sort of comment about Islamophobia because he doesn't even like mention Islamophobia at all. Thirdly, I, I mean, did I even? This must be like fourthly. Julian Burser just sounds so self righteous when he says stuff like this, and I just, I think not only just like this tweet, but his whole response to the whole situation should just completely go on the bit. Secondly, there was recently an article, like, was it posted? It was written. Yeah, it was for, written like, in the Saturday paper. The Saturday paper. It was written by Tom Ballard, and he. It's. It's basically. It says everything in the title. Tom Ballard visited refugees in detention as research for a new show, but found his subject became his white guilt. I don't even need to elaborate. <laughs> like, that's just. Do you know Tom Ballard follows us on on Twitter? Oh my god! I'm sorry. No, I'm not <laughs> oh, no, sorry. No, I'm not like, sorry, Tom. 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 Tom, mate. Uh, yeah. You did something wrong. We're putting you in the bin, aren't we? We're putting you in the bin, but you can redeem yourself if you can redeem yourself. I mean, we'll Wait, see so how you do that. Are people redeemable? Is that is that a thing? Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. recycling. You can recycle, recycle yourself. We can, yeah, exactly. We can, you know, we, we can, can put have you, a recycling bin. We can have a recycling bin. We can switch from rubbish to recycle. Yeah. And you can come back, my friend. You, you can could be, come you, back. But for now, you're in the bin. I mean, that was like the most ridiculous article I've ever read. I understand where you're trying to come from and trying to like evade white guilt, but it's just kind of like white people can make money off everything, including like feeling guilty about oppression. It just seems ridiculous. And he, like, you wrote an article basically about him going to a um, asylum seeker detention mm. center and having a laugh, being yeah. drunk, and he got paid for that article. What was that thing we were saying before about cookies? Yeah. This guy is just begging for cookies. Like, oh, he's no, no, like, he's not begging for cookies. He's having the cookies. Yes, exactly. He's got all he's his cookies. cookies. He's, he's mouthful of cookies. He's got, like, a whole show based on the fact that he's a privileged white boy. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't understand, like, how you can't be any less self-aware. Anyway. So, so what is what is Tom Ballard? Tom Ballard is in the bin. Boom. And we've left the best for last in the bin, our bin specialist, <laughs> the Daily Telegraph. You win it. You win it all. You are the most biniest bin paper the in the world. You're the damn tip. You're the whole you, you rubbish t- you t- tip. You, they take the whole bin. Yeah. <laughs> There's no more room. So they wrote an article about whitewashing. Yes, whitewashing. Apparently teaching students in schools about how O'Shea was invaded, not discovered by, um, was it was his name? Captain, captain Cook? Captain Cook, yeah. yeah. Whatever. That guy. That guy. He <laughs> uh, wasn't even a captain. He wasn't even a captain. Yeah, wasn't he like a convict? Oh, God, I don't know. But anyway, who guess? <laughs> but anyway, that's not, that's really not important. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, they have problems where um, there's this dictionary about what to say and how to say things and, and just be sensitive about how indigenous people feel about terminology. Mm. And they said they, they had a problem with this particular terminology. They said they don't like how they say... You have to say Australia was invaded. You should have said Australia was settled. Mm. They had a problem with saying Cook invaded, not discovered. They have a problem with people calling uh, Indigenous people Indigenous Australians, which is the the most arbitrary thing ever. Like, I don't (laughs) get how you could be... And they also had a problem with people saying dreamings instead of dream time like why do you care so much they like they wrote in the article like the dr- if you say the dream time it implies that it's over and they were like really offended that like white people can't say that the dream time is over like why do you care like, like why? why is this so important to you right okay i think i figured this out i oh. think i found the white reason behind this okay i think you mean you mean you mean the white reason right you, the white reason the white reason okay not the right reason the white reason <laughs> the white reason <laughs> so basically Basically, they have 
at this thing called anthropology. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> News flash. So in order to like understand the other people, like the non-white populations of the world, they need to have like a study called anthropology. Mm. And in that study called anthropology, they write everything about everybody else. <laughs> And if you tell them to change dream time to dreamings, they're basically no longer in control of that. No, no. So that's the issue. And I, I think I know another issue, which was raised by a young liberal called Matthew Lesh, <laughs> who criticised the guidelines saying they suffocate the free flow of ideas. I'm so sorry. He's, he's being suffocated by just terms like dreaming instead of dream time. I'm sorry, Matthew. I'm really, really sorry. So, <laughs> Daily, so the Daily um, Telegraph, you are in the bin. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d different nationalities. And, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. And over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there, no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. So we're moving on to our next segment, our featured story on the gentrification of Footscray. And Ahmed Yusuf has the story. Yes, I do. And, you know, the dreaded G word gentrification if you're in a neighborhood and while you're not that well to do this word haunts you you look at signs are there any new fancy restaurants or cafes has written recently and usually shut up one of melbourne's most infamous suburbs is in the midst of that very reality footscray first it came with a new train station and then it was a fancy new coffee shops and eateries and now big construction trucks have rolled in but how does this feel for Footscray residents and business owners on both sides of the spectrum? How are they dealing with it? And what kind of suburb is Footscray? I asked... Hi, I'm Liza. ...about what she thinks. Footscray, um, for me, Footscray has always been that place where everybody goes when they first migrate to Australia, or at least to Melbourne. So when we first started migrating, it was uh, more Asian, so it was um, Filipinos and Vietnamese people and Chinese people coming through here. Um, but then the people that we were displacing, if you will, were the Europeans. So when I was growing up here, there was more um, uh, European, like Italian food places, not a lot of Asian food places, um, uh, more coffee shops, that kind of thing. Um, and then slowly, once the people who have migrated here start moving out, so I think it's because, you know, maybe um, where you were previously, you might not have had your own space. And so when you move further out into the West, you can actually buy your own house. And that's sort of your piece of land that belongs to you. So you can't do that here. It's, it is quite expensive because it's so close to the city. And so I think 
as people start moving out, so the um, Vietnamese start going out and buying more property outside in the West or wherever, it then gets replaced and I think um, coming here it's been, or coming back, um, it's now being replaced by the Sudanese community, the Ethiopian community and the African um, community. And so now what I'm seeing when I go shopping or when I go and eat, it's, you know, the European food places have sort of disappeared. There's a couple of places, but not so many. There's a lot more Asian places now, which have been replacing all the European places. But then there's also, you know, there's the Ethiopian food places, um, a lot more, um, you know, halal butchers and that kind of thing. So I think it's, um, it's basically where everybody starts before they try and find a place to settle down. But is it place Liza talked about diminishing? This is... Soreti Kadir is my last name. Who thinks there's a divide? There, I think there are actually three types of Footscray. And some may call me divisive for, for saying it like that. But there is definitely the African side of Footscray or the African area of Footscray where a lot of the African businesses function, a lot of the African diaspora congregates in. Um, and then you have the uh, Vietnamese and I think some, some aspects of Chinese as well, I'm not sure, um, side of Footscray, where it's very similar in the way they function, but it's just two different demographics of people. Um, and then you have the newly emerging Footscray, the 8-bit, which i got to say, great burgers, but the 8-bits, the, um, what is that cafe called? You guys know which cafe I'm talking about. There's a cafe that is very, very predominantly white. Um, and I always ask myself, like, where do these, where do, where do white people come from just to come to these one to two to three? Now it's like four cafes or restaurants because you don't see them anywhere else in Footscray, but they will absolutely pack out these individual um, businesses. Um, and you, when when I come into these places, I actually feel like I'm in another suburb. Like I feel like I'm in Brunswick. I feel like I'm in Fitzroy. Um, it's very so. Yeah, I think there are these three distinctly different. Or Footscray has two distinctly different identities and then one dominant identity now that's trying to erase those smaller or those you know less powerful identities. What kind of neighbourhoods start to change and what comes in their place? And do things just start to look the same? I mean I know that gentrification means that things become nicer so to speak right and you know there's a there's a massive crane you can't see it but it's behind the trees there's a massive crane. It means that there's all these um, really cool trendy apartments coming up. And that's all well and good for people who, especially younger people, who want to meet, move closer to the city and uh, maybe own their own apartment or live somewhere closer to the city where it's not, you know, your Richmond, your Fitzroy, which is really expensive. But at the same time, the more people that we get um, living like that, I think it just becomes a little bit too the same as everywhere else. And so when I look around, I think the good thing about this place is if I've, like, I've just come back from doing my shopping. And so the best thing about it is I've just walked past, you know, maybe 30 different nationalities between here and the market. Whereas where I work in Fitzroy, I can go down um, the whole length of Smith Street and everything just feels the same. You know, it's, you know, and I don't want to make the stereotype, but it's, you know, guys in skinny jeans and their big beards and, and their... Um, you know, perfect moustaches and, you know, they all look the same. It doesn't matter who they are. They just look the same. I spoke to two people. Who do you think as gentrifiers? Lois? But it's like, oh, it all feels kind of sterile. 
and Zora. I feel like it's like it's like an actual community that's there. They tell me about the communities in Footscray they're not a part of, and the suburbs' diversity. I like go to other like when I go back to Fitzroy, which I don't do very often, to be honest. Only when you have to. When I have to. But it's like, oh, it all feels kind of sterile and like a bit, I don't know, boring. Mm. Like here, like I like that there are like there are you know there are places in Footscray that I would never go. I'm like that's like, like I'm not welcome there, but I'm like that's awesome. Yeah. Like I'm like. I'm glad that it's not. Because I feel like it's like it's like an actual community that's there yeah, for itself, exactly. not for other people to like to benefit. And that's yeah. just. And that, I feel like that's that's real community rather than it being like something that everyone can get access to. When yeah, my favourite thing is waiting in the queue at the post office, um, at the Footscray post office, <laughs> and it's like. Because it's like everyone has to go to the post office, right? And it's like this microcosm of people who've just arrived, like people who've, who've lived in Footscray for like 60 years, um, you know, the kind of all the like waves of, of um, migration from different places are all there. And it's awesome. Community is so important for so many young Africans in Footscray, connected to language, culture and tradition. And that's not lost on Soreti. Particularly, really like about Footscray is that I can wake up in the morning and go to Footscray and feel so at home. Like it's not unusual for me to hear someone or multiple people multiple times in a day speaking Oromo just casually on the street um, or other languages that I recognise. And you know, there are these um, these little repetitive nuances about Footscray. Like things, there are particular things that are always the same, and for some very arbitrary things. But when you be become accustomed to seeing them every day, they become kind of a part of your visual landscape and your visual understanding of what Footscray is. Um, you know, for example, seeing the, always seeing a group of like older, usually South Sudanese or other African countries, um, these men just sitting outside co coffee shops and drinking coffee. No matter what time of the day it is, there's always some, you know, a group of people there. And I'm always having to walk past them. And, um, you know, just these little things. So like what Sereti said there about kind of like knowing people that speak the same language or being familiar with language and culture and, mm. and having people that look like you and who know you from like, like since you were a kid, basically. Mm. And I know that like I used to go to Footscray all the time to get my hair cut, to, to go and get my Eid clothes when it was Eid. Our mum would go because we have aunties who have businesses there. They don't have business there anymore. <sighs> and we all know why. And I just like think... A lot of these, like a lot of these things, are so important. It's so integral to your, to mm. your, uh, to like growing up. Because like I remember going to this, like this one, I think it was this one Asian shop where we'd buy this little small little suit that I'd wear for <laughs> for Eid for like tons of times. Or I'd go to this Somali uh, kind of clothes place and buy some something like uh, like some Somalian clothes. Or we'd go and we'd go to Footscray, um, the Footscray Mall. And have some food, some busa, some Somali food, or whatever, and and we, it would just be like a day. It'd yeah. be a day of it, you know what I mean? But our little Africa of Footscray is kind of changing. Mm. And I don't know. What do you guys think? How do you how do you feel about like little communities being uprooted, uprooted in that <sighs> sense? Uh, when I was little, I lived. I like grew up in Turalgan, which is like really far away from like. I, there was like only one 
I remember the other person of colour in our neighbourhood was, like, the chemist. And, like, we would go to his house and, like, hang out with him. But, like, we didn't know him other than being the chemist because he was, like, the only other piece of community we had. But, like, whenever we wanted to, like, go to, like, inverted commas, the city, we wouldn't go to, like, Melbourne City. We'd go to Dandenong because that's, like, where my parents, like, felt, like, most at home, where it felt, like, almost the most metropolitan to them because it had, like the food they wanted and the clothes they wanted and whatever they the wanted. Spices just, they the spi- wanted. spices they wanted. Like, yeah. This is like the 90s, man. Like This wasn't <laughs> like in the 2000s where like there was like an Indian grocery store like in pretty much every suburb. Like it was really hard to get things. And I just, I can't imagine if like, what if like one year, if we were still in Taralgan and one year like Danny Nong was just gone. I don't know. But Danny Nong is also being gentrified exactly, as well. Exactly, exactly. And like, like I never, I didn't live in Footscray. Um, I live in, I lived in Brometos my yeah. entire life. But Footscray was so important still. It's like you as a cultural center. Yeah. yeah, like a community space. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's it's sad because you know originally there would be like public housing, but the thing about Footscray, there's not like um, a set of flats like there are in Flavington or North Melbourne. Or to an extent, Kensington. Mm. There's like there's like flats and and like or Fitzroy as well because like yeah. there's this whole community of people and they could be like we'll rally together and make sure our flats are still there. Yeah. Whereas I think in Footscray there was just like community houses like mm. in terms of like there was house commission but like just for houses and you could kind of like take people one by one by one out. Yeah. And then suddenly the, ge- the <laughs> it gets gentrified yeah. and it just becomes way more white. Exactly. Yeah, speaking of that, I think this one time, one of my friends was having a leaving party in Footscray. Um, She actually lived in Footscray. Um, She was going overseas. And um, I got lost. (laughs) I I kind of just took, like, a wrong bus ride or whatever. And I came to, like, this area where there were these fancy flats and white people were living in them. I mean, there were white people walking around. (laughs) It was, like, a weird part of Footscray. Like, I have never seen that part. So clearly they have found a little, like, subset to Mm. get into. But it was kind of interesting. Like, it's sad that it's happening. Like, I did not grow up in Australia, so I can't really compare. But hearing the stories from, you know, my friends and the people... Um, from their communities, you know, from what they are saying that this community is changing or the communities there are changing by virtue of gentrification, it it does break your heart. It's, yeah. it's hard to... I mean, I think as people of colour who have been displaced, it's actually quite hard to hear that. Mm. But for how long will these communities last? Under the changing tide of what we know as Footscray right now, is it the cafes, the hipster restaurants that are pushing people out or is there something bigger that's happening in Footscray? I mean, yeah, I think Footscray is resistant to gentrification, but it it sort of it happen it does happen um, to a degree, and you know, there's places like Rudimentary and um, yeah. uh, Littlefoot and Eight Bit and these kind of like hipster hangouts happening happening slowly. It happens slowly, and I know that people. Like, they've had graffiti and, and stuff kind of, like, telling them they're not welcome in Footscray and, like, like mm. that you know, they don't want the kind of hipsters um, here. But, I mean, I don't think those are the people that you need to worry about so much. I think it's, like, the huge... Developers. In, yeah, I know. I think it's the yeah. developers, like, the huge inappropriate mm. developers that are going to come in. Mm. Um, I mean, already, like... It's a lot more expensive here, like in rent terms, than it was yeah, when yeah. we first moved, like four years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that's just going to get worse and worse. And with these new buildings being built, what are their effects on residents in Footscray? What happens? This is Karib. Property prices in the area went three, 
straight through the roof. He's a business owner of Footscray and has seen firsthand the changes that's been in store for him and his colleagues. Um, along Irving Street where we are at the moment, uh, 10 years ago you could have bought a property along here maybe for about $230,000 to $300,000. Now you're looking close to about half a million. Um, the shop at the end of this strip here sold for $760,000 in 2013. And again, two years later, it sold for close to a million dollars. Um, so in that way, is it affordable? No, it's not. And what's pushing these prices up? You don't have to go far. Two minutes down the road from here, you've got Seddon, Yarraville. You're looking at way above eight, $800,000, $700,000. And this is small, small family homes. So people from new, newly arrival or refugees, those sort of price tags are wishful thinking. I mean, let alone them, uh, professionals educated here are finding it hard to get into the property market. So for that reason, no. And you know, the, the close proximity to the city and to the Docklands that Footscray is, um, the more appealing it is to um, developers. And that's why you've got properties that were selling off the market at uh, the Kmart complex for $475,000, two bedroom apartments, one car park, two bedrooms, 475, off the plan. And I'm sure if you go up there, knock on them now and say, hey, look, I want to buy a property here. Probably looking at $550,000 plus. So in that sense, I doubt that there's going to be a lot of Africans left in Footscray um, in the next five years to come. Lois and Zora could see they contribute to gentrifying Footscray, but grapple with the reality and what is gentrification? And what happens to those communities that start to be displaced? I mean, it's, all, it's a bit rich for me, for me to talk about gentrification because it's like, <laughs> what am I if not... <laughs> bloody gentrification, like moving from Fitzroy because it, it's gotten too expensive <laughs> and now I'm moving to Footscray. It's like, I, you know, if I have a problem with it, well, I'm, I'm the problem. <laughs> so, you know, I can't be too... I don't think I can complain about it too much. Um, like, I worry about it in the really kind of material terms that, that people who want to be here, who have strong communities here, won't be able to live here just because of, it's too expensive. Mm. Like, that's what what really worries me. I mean, I don't think, I think the communities here are really strong and I think like if they get forced out because of money, basically, I think, you know, they'll be fine. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like, I'd hate to see. But also it probably would result in some like fragmentation because people aren't going to all move in one, in one block and distance yeah, is, is kind of important, yeah. I think. And I mean, you know, Footscray has like places like this at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, like it has these kind of institutions that have actually been around, around for a long time and I mean you could kind of see places like this as as a sort of gentrification mm. um, but Cause it's, it's like formalising community yeah but I mean it has like that's been going on for a really long time so it's kind of it's like this what what exactly do you mean by gentrification I guess you have to think about like you know, gentrification, if it means, like, you know, an extra cafe or, you know, something that's not, like, that's, like, adding something to the community rather than forcing something out. I, like, I think that's fine and it's mm. natural and it's going to happen. Um, the kind of gentrification where, yeah, you know, you, you build an apartment block for, like, 2,000 people and suddenly... You have an influx of... You have an influx of, of wealth... of you know, much wealthier people who are paying much higher rents and everyone else thinks, oh, well, we can, like, p mm. people are prepared to pay this, so we'll charge more. And when you lose, yeah, uh, yeah, you lose those those communities, and you, as you say, if those are forced yeah. to kind of fragment and break up, that would be pretty depressing. But what are some of the stages of gentrification? 
how do you move a community? If Footscray along Nicholson Street what's known as Little Africa, parking units started to appear. After months of delegating, they were temporarily discontinued. I spoke to Fortun. Today I have a small business in Footscray and this is my shop. It's called Diva Beauty and Skincare. Before the paid parking was stopped, she told me about the impact it had on her business. What I would like to see first, I want to have a problem with, we have a problem with parking, which is shocking. Even on a public holiday, we still get fines and we have to put money. And we need to improve the parking in Footscray first. But why is parking so important? Parking, no customer's going to come. The customer's not relaxed here, he's thinking about he's going to get fined or she or he, whatever. And we are relying on them. So if there's a, uh, they're going to worry about fines, how are they going to shop or come? They might go somewhere else, we might not have no customer at all. Where are the customers going? Displacement of customers. So the fact is to do with the metered car parking and the cameras and the lack of car park uh, space available in Footscray has driven some of our customers away to um, other neighbouring areas. You've got High Point, which just looks huge, and you've got ample amount of free parking, air-conditioned, so they've got all the shops that they can go to there. But can things change, or is Footscray a lost cause? Croom thinks there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but help is needed. Now, thanks to our friends, the Footscray Asian Business Association, we also have our African Business Association, where we can stand up and fight. You know, and, and we can stand up to them and say, hey, look, these sort of things that you're doing are wrong. One of the reasons why they cancelled um, the parking or they looking at parking restrictions and looking at parking laws is because uh, Asba and Faba and the Yarraville traders and a lot of other groups have been lobbying council and pushing them, not only just recently, but since the time that they've decided to in introduce those silly uh, cameras where they were booking people left, right and centre. So, yes. You know, we do have a voice and yes, the council and the state government specifically do have powers to uh, make sure an area is developed, but is developed properly with sound, conscious decisions. Not just simply looking at how much can Mr. Blowjo or Mr. X provide into our economy. Okay, this much, done, don't you worry, whatever you want, it's approved. We'll rezone a whole area and you can turn, you know, a commercial part of Footscray or even Altona North, we'll just turn it into a residential for you. So you can build up apartment blocks which will stay completely empty. Because some parts of Australia, that's what's happening. They build apartment blocks, no one lives in them. They build them, build them, no one lives in them. So what's, <laughs> you know, it, that doesn't make sense to me. But if you've got sound policies in place, and the only people that can do that are government and, 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 and the state government and the council in consultation with us. So if they can't do it, then who else will? No one's gonna listen to me. We are just making Jera. <laughs> this story was produced by Mariah Ademi and I. It first screened as a video documentary at Inner Words Black Voices Conference. That was the race card. Hope you enjoyed listening in. I've been Arundhati and also we've had... Me! Yeah, uh, th that was... I feel like that was a good episode. I really liked the interview with Ali Abunima, who was awesome, coming last minute on the last day he was in Melbourne wow. before he shipped off on Saturday to take time out of his day and, and talk to us, which was really cool. Um, if you don't know him, check him out. Check Electronic Intifada. Uh, follow him on Twitter. I think his name is just Ali Abun uh, Abunima on Twitter. We'll have links and everything on the Tumblr, which Arundhati does, thankfully. Oh, yeah. Wow. And check our Facebook and Twitter stuff. We are um, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash show. Um, we are also on Twitter at RaceCardPod 
and you can find me on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf Tim. But also, they can find you both. How can they find you? Well, they can follow me at Amina Ziard, A M E N A Z I A R D. Oh, and you can find me at A Arundhati, A A R U N D H A T H I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's 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 it's bye for me. <laughs> bye for me. Bye, everybody. It was so nice talking at you. <laughs> and and like you know, like if you wanna talk to us, you can talk to us on our social media channels. Yeah, and you know, maybe if you want to send a voice note, you can send a voice note. Yeah, yeah, actually, if you want to send me a tweet, please send me a tweet. Send a I'm tweet. very lonely. I have like 30 followers, guys. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get you up in the follower charts. Yeah. I have like three tweets. Yeah. Hey, They're good you, though. The, the quality the, wait, wait, tweets. Like the, the followers to tweet ratio is actually pretty good. <laughs> But like, if you had that legitimately for yeah. the rest of your kind of like tweeting <laughs> life, if you had the same kind of ratio to three to 30, You're doing well. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening again. Bye. 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 We're binners. Let's see if Tom Ballard can recycle himself. If he like actually listens to this, hey, I'm no, gonna no. be so. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna add him on the Twitter thing. Are you serious? I'm gonna like Julie Bertrand did a bid. Mm. Tom Ballard did a bid. Uh, Daily Telegraph did a bid. Oh, but who cares? About- Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs>